Welcome to Christian Renewal Sunday Sermon. Thanks for tuning in to our series, Seven Letters, which is an in-depth study of the seven letters John recorded in the first four chapters of Revelation. For more information about this sermon and other resources, please visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org. This morning we're going to look at the letter from Jesus delivered through St. John, the Apostle John to the church at Pergamum. That's going to start in verse 12 and we'll read through um, verse 17. Is that right? Yes, 17. Father, we dedicate this time to you. Lord, it's not about me. It's not about a man, not about a gift, not about a personality. Lord, use this time to speak. We want to hear your word. We sang this morning, God, we love your voice. As a house, God, we do. We know that this written word is God-breathed. This is your voice to us. So even as we read it this morning, I pray hearts would be touched and changed. Lord, as I communicate this morning, I pray that you would guard my lips. And Lord, every statement that's from your heart, I pray it would pierce. Every statement that's from your heart, God, I pray it would fulfill its purpose in shaping us to be the bride who is spotless as she comes to you. Make us that spotless bride this morning, God, as we study your word. Lord, every word of my mouth this morning that's not from your heart, I pray it fall. We've got to have you in this house, God. We are not a people. This is not a church that's satisfied with going through the motions. It just ain't us, God. We've got to have you. We're just not content without your presence. Hallelujah. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's look at Revelation chapter 2 this morning. I better get this ready. She'll know I'm be coughing up a lung in about 30 seconds. Pergamum was a city that was incredibly significant. It was modeled after Athens. Um, so obviously in Asia Minor, the seven letters are written to churches in Asia Minor. The, the city of Pergamon was modeled after Athens, and some say it exceeded Athens in its beauty. It's, it's 90 miles north of Ephesus. So if Ephesus is on the coast, um, and, and then um, Smyrna is about 40 miles above Ephesus, and then Pergamum is about um, 90 miles from Ephesus, so another 50 miles up. And the, the order that the letters in Revelation are given, these seven letters, they're given in an order that it would take a, someone to deliver them. Does that make sense? So like the idea is that someone first came to Ephesus and walked up to Smyrna, and then they would go up um, to Pergamum. And so they, they kind of come in this um, systematic order. Pergamum was the single city um, in, in, in all of Asia Minor that, that had the most idolatry. Some say it has the most idolatry in all of the Roman Empire. Up to 50 false gods worshipped in Pergamum. Jesus in our text today, in our passage, he'll call Pergamum the place where Satan's throne is. That's quite a statement. The place where Satan dwells, he'll say again. The level of idolatry in the city of Pergamon was, was so thick and rampant that it reached the status that heaven referred to it as the place of Satan's throne. Now scholars suggest a few different options of what Satan's throne could mean. 
First, the emperor was the emperor of Rome was worshipped in Pergamon. And many believers, they lost their citizenship in Rome for refusing to offer incense to Caesar and declare him to be God. This was a source of persecution. And it was also a source of a place of compromise. It was a place where a believer could come and either worship the emperor as God and compromise their faith. Or they could resist and be persecuted. So some say that, that Jesus may have called it the place where Satan's throne is because of the emperor's place of worship. Second, there was a huge altar to Zeus, literally a throne to Zeus. Archaeologists in the 1860s, a German archaeologist, he, he dug up all the pieces to this um, altar to Zeus and he reassembled them in Berlin uh, in a museum, uh, Pergamum, in Berlin. You can still see it today. The altar is put back together with all the pieces. It's said that Hitler actually modeled a podium after the throne of Zeus in Pergamum to speak from as he campaigned. That's demonic. Third, there was a temple um, to Asclepius in Pergamum. He was the god of healing. Do you know the medical symbol of a, uh, of a snake wrapped around a rod? Um, that's the symbol for the god um, Asclepius. And the, the temple in Pergamon, um, you would come in if you were sick, and you would, you would be given, uh, you would be given some, some stuff that would put you to sleep, some drink. We call that drink. They give you a little drink. They put you to sleep, and you were supposed to go to sleep on the floor in the temple. And the temple was filled with non-poisonous snakes. And the snakes would crawl all over you as you slept. And the snakes would release healing. And that is also what I call demonic. Anything that has me touching a snake is from hell. It is hellish. The city of Pergamon was built on a hill. And so, you know, they call that hill the Acropolis. And so as you approach the Acropolis, some say you could see the smoke from all of the idolatry, from all of the sacrifices flowing down the hills. Now in Pergamum, in this place where heaven calls the, the throne of Satan, there was a church. And, and most scholars suggest that, that Paul probably planted this church in his stay at Ephesus. So we know that Paul was in Ephesus for three years. And it's assumed that because Pergamum was such a significant city, that Paul probably either went up to Pergamum to plant the church himself, or he sent a team of missionaries from Ephesus, likely to Smyrna and to Pergamum, to plant that church. Our text today will tell us that in Pergamum there was a man named Antipas. Jesus calls a faithful witness. Now, Jesus is referred to in Revelation chapter 1 as the faithful witness. So that's significant that this man, Antimus, Jesus calls a faithful witness. So we know from Revelation that Antipas was martyred in Pergamum. Church history tells us, sometimes when you read church history, it can be conflicting. And so we don't approach church history as if it's inerrant like Scripture. Scripture is inerrant. Church history, um, we study it like any other history. It's sometimes um, we know it to be true, we know it to be accurate, and there are other times where we're not so sure. Um, but So what church history says about Antipas, Irenaeus actually recorded. And Irenaeus was, again, I'm going to, Irenaeus was a, a disciple of, of Polycarp. And Polycarp was a disciple of John who wrote this letter. And so what I'm about to tell you is what Irenaeus said about Antipas. So it, it, there's a chance that it's true, and many believe it doggedly to be true. But it, it's not scripture, so there's, there's a chance that it may not be. Um, but what, what, what um, Irenaeus said about Antipas was this, that Antipas was the bishop of Pergamum, just like Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna. Remember we talked about that last not last week, but the week before. So Antipas was the bishop of Smyrna, according to um, Irenaeus. 
And, and according to Irenaeus, Antipas had a strong deliverance ministry. By deliverance ministry, I mean that the, the Antipas liked to, liked to cast out demons. He liked to do it. So Antipas found himself in a city with rampant idolatry. And Antipas said to himself, hey, there's a lot of demons around here to be casting out. And so he got busy in a ministry of, of deliverance. And the, the pagans were very offended by the fact that Antipas was casting out demons. And so Irenaeus wrote that the pagans drug Antipas before the, before the governor and said that Antipas was causing a great uproar because Antipas again was casting out a lot of demons. And the, and the governor tells Antipas, now you have two options. You can repent and, um, return to your pagan roots or we will slaughter you eventually. And Antipas refuses to repent and this is what happened. We do know this is True from history. We know that the way in which Antipas was murdered is a way that, that people were murdered. We do know this from history. Um, so there was this, this, this ancient way to um, murder someone, and, and this is how it went. At Zeus's altar, there was a big bronze bull, a big statue-like thing. Now, scholars say one of two things. Either this big bronze statue of a bull had a door on the side, which could be opened, or the big bronze statue was kind of like a bowl. Either way, there was an inside where a person could be put. And out of the front of the bull, out of the horns, there were two instruments. There were, there were multiple instruments built so that as a person was put inside this bull and uh, they began to die, they would scream and it would, there would be musical instruments that would release their screams. And so what they did was they tied Antipas and they put him inside this big bronze bull. Either they opened the door and put him inside or they put him inside a bowl tied up and they lit a big fire underneath Antipas. And they roasted him alive. And as he shouted and screamed in agony, there was a sound released from the horn, the instrument of the bull. And that was the way that church history says that Antipas is martyred. Now, this gives you a little context to the atmosphere and scenarios that have surrounded the church at Pergamum. Jesus will say to them, you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Jesus says at the when when if if Antipas was was the the bishop, um, either way, when Antipas was martyred, you had an opportunity to quit and you could have walked away and said, hey, I I ain't getting roasted. But he says to the church at Pergamum, you didn't quit. You had an opportunity to walk away, but you didn't. But Jesus will, as we read our text today, will say, although you didn't quit in your day of persecution, there's compromise in the house. And my point as we read today is essentially this. Many times there are churches who make a bold stand and say, we will worship no other God but Jesus alone. Even in the face of persecution, there's a bold stance made. And sometimes when the enemy can't get you to bow in fear, he'll work at you with slow and steady compromise. And what Jesus will say to the church is, you didn't bow in fear, but over time, you've compromised. And over time, you've allowed teaching and doctrine and practice in the church that does not honor me. And there's a slow, steady disobedience that has festered in the church at Pergamum. Let's read from Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. 
Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have there some who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, Therefore, repent. If not, I'll come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus says this every time he writes to a church. There's always this line. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's been my prayer for you as we study this, is that you would have an ear to hear what the Spirit says. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I'll give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Thank you, Lord, for your word this morning. Again, Jesus acknowledges their faithfulness to stand during persecution. Yet Jesus says, I have a few things against you. First, they have some who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Now, you remember the story. Balak tries to get Balaam to curse Israel. Do you remember? Um, there's, he, he tries to pay Balaam to curse Israel. But every time Balaam goes to curse Israel, he blesses Israel instead. Do you remember this? The scripture concludes that story this way in Numbers 24, 25. Do you have that text for me? It says, then Balaam rose and went back to his place. And Balak also went his own way. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. What rabbinic um, literature has always taught, and, and there's, there's hints of this in the scripture. So this is a part of oral tradition and not, um, and, and not the text. And so again, we don't believe even rabbinic oral tradition to be infallible. There, it disagrees with itself all the time too. Um, but what rabbinic oral tradition taught, what, what was, what was taught was that when, when Balaam couldn't curse Israel, what he taught Balak to do was to, was to encourage the, the Moabite women to seduce the men of Israel. He said, um, and again, this is this is what's referred to here when it says most scholars agree. This is what's referred to when it says that you hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to entice the people. So the idea is that what Balaam said was, no, you'll you won't be able to get God to curse them. That that whole strategy doesn't work. Even if I tried to curse Israel, ain't going to happen. But he said there is one way to get Israel. Allow the women to seduce the men. And it, it'll be slow and steady, but eventually they'll begin to worship false gods. You can't curse Israel, but Israel can bring a curse upon herself through slow and steady compromise. And that is what uh, almost all scholars agree with is, is referred to here as the teaching of Balaam. And again, I could show you that a few other places in Scripture where it's hinted at, that idea is hinted at. So when, when, when Balaam couldn't get God to curse Israel, he could get Israel to curse herself if he could entice her away, lure her away into compromise. Now Jesus says that the church of Pergamon has stood 
stood fast and firm in the face of persecution. But they've allowed Balaam's teaching to remain. To continue to entice the people of God away from holiness. I love Matthew Henry's words. He says, observe the filthiness of the spirit and filthiness of the flesh often go together. Corrupt doctrines and corrupt worship often lead to corrupt conversation and follow the logic. Corrupt living within the church is often yoked to, if not always, yoked to corrupt teaching. Now this church dwells in the midst of Satan's throne. And that is a great challenge. We look at our culture today and we say, oh God, we've got a great challenge. Our kids grow up with influences that are demonic. What a great challenge. Antipas thought it was a great opportunity. Antipas said, I look, I live in Satan's throne. I better do deliverance. There, there is a great challenge when you look at our culture, but there's also a great opportunity. There's also a chance for you to actually be the light of the world, a city set on a hill. There's also a chance for you to actually walk with the kingdom of God and, and release the kingdom into the earth. There's also an opportunity to bring healing. There's also opportunity to preach the gospel in power. Our culture is falling away. And we could say with Pergamum, oh, a great challenge. Or we could say, oh, God, what an opportunity. Antipas says, oh God, an opportunity. I'll do deliverance. But here is where we find Western Christianity. I'm going to be a little raw this morning. Just forgive me, y'all. Just forgive me. Here's where we find Western Christianity. Especially liberal Western Christianity. We've begun to shape our doctrines and our teaching according to the influence of our culture. And so we have the sexual revelation in the 60s, 70s. And why is it that today we're arguing about sexuality? Not because the scriptures changed. You're the salt of the earth, man. You're in the world, but not of the world. Culture should not, y'all hear me, culture should not have her grip on us. We should have our grip on culture. She shouldn't. We should not be bowing and bending every time there's a new cultural agenda that rises to the surface. Now again, you've heard me say a hundred times, we should never be people of hatred. We should never be people who are looking to pick a fight. But, but we ought to be people of truth and we ought to be people of conviction. And at some point, we've got to stand and say, as for me and my house, we serve the Lord. And every other God is an idol who can't speak and can't see. We will not worship idols. And our teaching ought to reflect the teaching given to us through Scripture. The decay of our culture is discouraging. It's also a great opportunity. What paradigm will you embrace? Will you be discouraged by the decay of culture and begin to compromise your conviction and say, woe is me, I live in the midst of sinners. I might as well just sin. It's so hard to live holy here. Or will you say, by God, we've got an opportunity to see revival and awakening shake this nation. 
It's my prayer that we see revival shake this community. It's my prayer night and day that God would have mercy on us. That many, the, 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 the church in the West lives compromised. We live asleep, man. Asleep. And it's my prayer night and day. God, have mercy on us. Wake us up. Oh, God, wake us up. Many of us slumber, God, and we can't, we can't shake ourselves out of the slumber. We're going to have to have a move of the Holy Ghost. And we deserve judgment. And I'm praying, God, have mercy on us. Revival is mercy, friends. Revival is an opportunity for repentance. church at Pergamum wouldn't bow to false gods, but they slowly lay down their influence to culture and they slide ever so slowly into compromise. The second rebuke goes this way. There are some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, the Nicolaitans, it's a, it's a bit more of a mystery. Some church fathers write that um, that in Acts chapter six, do you remember when the apostles um, got too busy with trying to distribute food to widows? Do you remember this text in Acts six? And um, what the apostles did was they decided what we what we need to do is we need to appoint some deacons to take care of the widows because um, we can't spend all of our time serving tables, so to speak, passing out food. We need to spend our time in prayer and studying the scripture, and we need to appoint some deacons. And remember, Stephen was a deacon. Stephen was the first martyr. He was a deacon. What some church fathers wrote was that there was a deacon named Nicholas from Acts chapter 6. And Again, we don't know this to be truth, but it's church history. And what they wrote was that Nicholas went astray, and Nicholas began to embrace some form of Gnosticism, um, and that the Nicolaitans were uh, a heretical group that were clinging to the teaching of Nicholas, um, who, again, held to Gnosticism. Now, we talk about Gnosticism all the time, and Gnosticism is very important to understanding the New Testament, especially when you're dealing with the writings of John. Because Gnosticism is a late movement. It has, it has its rise, really, in the second century, but in the late first century, it begins to flourish and Again, John is the, the, the last disciple to go, right? He's the oldest disciple. All of John's texts are the oldest, lit, written the latest. Does that make sense? So John is dealing with a different movement than the early writers would. And so John's constantly dealing with Gnosticism. Now, Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis. And gnosis means knowledge. And Gnosticism claimed to have a secret knowledge. The secret knowledge was essentially dualism. Dualism meaning that everything that is spiritual is good and holy, and everything that is matter is evil. And so they had a real problem with the person of Jesus because we believe that God, that Jesus was God in the flesh. He was fully God and fully man. He wasn't half God and half man. He was fully God and fully man. And so uh, Gnosticism would teach things like, no, Jesus was um, a phantom that walked the earth. He didn't have a body because bodies are evil. Or they would teach things like um, Jesus actually wasn't God. He was just a really good teacher. They couldn't deal with um, the fact that Jesus was God and man because of their dualism. So their Christology was funky. Everybody say funky. Funky and Christology usually don't go in the same sentence. Welcome to Christian Renewal Church. So there were a plethora of views within Gnosticism. It was a wide movement. And to, 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 to try to... Banded into one um, set of theological views is 
is a challenge. There were a lot of views, but often what would happen was Gnosticism would get to this place where it's, the logic basically went like this. Everything spiritual is good. Everything matter is evil. I have sexual desires and you have sexual desires. Fulfilling your sexual desires is evil. It doesn't matter. Your body is evil anyway. Just fulfill them. It doesn't, you're, anything you do with your flesh it doesn't, it doesn't matter because it's not who you are. You have an inner spark within you. This is the teaching of Gnosticism. An inner spark within you, an inner peace of God. And you're supposed to find that spark. Um, but what you do with your flesh, it's just flesh. It doesn't matter. And so it led to this um, extreme uh, antinomianism, which means against law, the sense of you can live however you want. Now, if that's exactly what the Nicolaitans taught... We're not totally sure, but, but church history teaches that. And I think there's a strong chance that that's what the, where the teaching was going. So the Pergamon church stood persecution, but they allowed someone to come in with the, with the spirit of Balaam and teach the people that, that compromise wasn't that big of a deal to entice the people to compromise. And the church of Pergamon stood in persecution, but somehow someone came in teaching the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And the church began to live however they want to live. Their theology and their doctrine began to be perverted. Their Christology, their understanding of Jesus himself was perverted. And so they stood in persecution, but they compromised in daily living. Now, I want to say a few things regarding this text in our modern context. First, false teaching always has its roots in a false teacher. Here is someone named, named Nicholas, possibly a man who is called to serve as a deacon. False teachers always look like genuine teachers. You don't make counterfeit money and make it look like monopoly money. Unless you're my kids. False teachers always look on the outside like genuine leaders. The currency of false teaching, the motivation, the undergirding of false teaching is almost always money and sex. And every little heretical cult, give it some time, and it's almost always money or sex. And there are many false teachers in our nation who have stood behind podiums like I stand today, have worn the title pastor that I wear today, and have used these things to manipulate the church, to lead the church in deception. It's arrogance. It's flesh. It's pride. We have embraced a sense of spiritual narcissism. It's carnality wrapped in a spiritual aroma. Listen to me for a second. It's prayerlessness. There is no fear of God at all in some of our spiritual leadership. It is carnality at its best. Wrapped in a spiritual perfume. I want to, I want to do something a little different this morning. And this might be a little weird for some of you. But I want to stand in the gap this morning. And as your pastor behind a podium wearing the title of pastor ask you for your forgiveness. I want you to hear me clearly. I have not stolen any money from this church. I did steal a piece of cake out of the fridge. When Allison made it, she left it in there, and, it, and, I, and I stole it, okay? The only thing I've stolen from this church was one piece of cake from Allison. 
have not committed any acts of sexual immorality. But there are times, scripturally speaking, where leaders repent on behalf of their class. Daniel in chapter 9 releases this wonderful prayer of repentance where he cries out to God, Oh God, have mercy on us. We have abandoned you. We have gone after idols. And Daniel was one of the most holy man, men in all of scripture. Daniel had not gone after idols, yet he repents on behalf of the people. So this morning, I'm not saying to you that I have partaken of spiritual carnality, but I do want to repent to you on behalf of the spiritual leaders who have stood where I've stood, who have worn the title or that I've worn and have manipulated you, have used your money, have committed acts of sexual immorality, have gossiped about you. I want you to forgive me this morning for those who have betrayed you, have used their leadership as a means of manipulation and power, who have made you feel ostracized. All the while taking a big enough paycheck to have airplanes and big houses. And I want to tell you this morning in a spirit of repentance that we as a nation have got to do better. It's been my prayer before God this morning, um, this week. God says to Ezekiel in one of the, um, in the 30s, Ezekiel 30s, in one of those chapters, God says to Ezekiel about the shepherds, he said, the shepherds of Israel do not feed the flock, but they make themselves fat. And God says that he's about to release judgment upon the shepherds of Israel because they don't care about God's people. They just care about getting fat. And I want to tell you that many Western church leaders have just cared about getting fat have just cared about a paycheck, have just cared about a spiritual persona, have just cared about looking a certain way, and they've yielded, wielded their power to manipulate and to harm the church. I also want to stand in the gap this morning and tell you in a spirit of repentance that we as pastors and leaders in the body of Christ must do better or we must be removed from leadership. The showmanship has got to stop. The showmanship has to stop. It is not God-fearing. It's greed, it's flesh, and it must be crucified. God forbid any man or woman wear the title of pastor or leader in the church of Jesus Christ without first dying. It's my prayer that no man ever stands behind this pulpit without first dying. Living a crucified life. You bury me in the prayer closet. You be sure that I'm buried in the prayer closet. That I'm marked by a fear of God. I'd rather lie under the anointing of the Holy Ghost in the prayer closet than lead a church with no unction. I'd rather live a life of intercession and never preach another message again. And know the anointing of God that stand before you and lead by the flesh. You bury me in the prayer closet. Find me a man crucified. Lastly, I'd like to say one more thing that could be perceived as a little bit harsh this morning, but I think it's necessary to say. We as a corporate body in the West, in the church in the West, we also need to do some repenting. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, there's a time coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers that suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. There are men and women who stand in church leadership who have never should have stood there, but there are also men and women in our bodies who crave their teaching. Paul said the church will, in the last days, accumulate for herself teachers who will scratch their itching ears. 
They have this deep desire, deep within their ear canal, that itches that they can't, they can't scratch it enough. And so they crave teachers who will bring some teaching, who will, who will scratch their itch and their flesh. To some extent, we as a body, as a corporate church in the West, we have chosen men and women who knew not death. Let me be harsh for a second. We have fangirled after men who wear the title prophet, followed them around to every conference, put them in a place where only Jesus should stand. We've allowed men who live fleshly lifestyles to be called apostles, to exalt themselves above the authority of Scripture. Shame on us. There was a mighty move of God, a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the 70s and in the 80s. We're flocking after men, craving the teaching and the intention of men who knew not the fear of God. I want you to know that I believe in apostleship. I believe in the role of the prophet even today. I do. But I also believe that no man and no woman alive today supersedes the scriptures. And no man and no woman alive today is above accountability. And every man who stands in the place of leadership ought to be accountable in regards to his finances, in regards to his sexual ethic, in regards to the way that he treats the people that he leads. Every man in leadership, no matter what title, I don't care what title he wears, we are not Mormons. We're not Jehovah's Witnesses. I don't care what title spiritual leaders wear in this nation. They should be held accountable. And the truth is we craved their teaching. And we embraced their false doctrine. And it led us to compromise. And now the church is in the West today. And now we're arguing about sexuality. Again, the scriptures have not changed. When we should be arguing about mechanisms, prayer, prayer strategies, and how we're going to reach this nation, we're arguing about the sexual ethic. The church has never argued about sexual ethic in all of its existence. We've compromised. If we're going to go higher, it's going to require a new level of holiness. A new fear of God. We're going to have to repent of enjoying good shows and calling it worship. We're going to have to repent of watching men pumped with adrenaline with great displays of emotion and calling it anointing. No, it's not anointing unless it brings you to the cross and brings you to death. It's not anointing unless it brings you to new life. It's not anointing unless it presses you to the place of prayer. If our churches are prayerless, then we have no anointing. The anointing of God would birth a prayer movement in our churches. The anointing of God would would put a passion on us that that would would not endure compromise. The anointing of God would would, would press us to a place of death. And finally, Jesus says, to those who overcome, I'll give some of the hidden manna. Those who don't feast in idol worship will find their satisfaction in the bread of heaven. To those who overcome, I'll give a white stone with a new name 
Most likely what this means is sometimes when there is a, um, a trial of sorts, um, those making the decision of the trial would either cast a black stone for guilty or a white stone for innocent. Most likely what it means is Jesus will give us the stone of innocence. Thank you for listening to this Sunday sermon. Subscribe to our podcast for new messages weekly. Visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org for more resources. We hope you have a blessed week.